You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're going to be bringing you some more information from the prairies uh, back north of the border into Canada, and we're going to be visiting with the guest that we had on uh, on the podcast last year, Dr. Mike Anderson, an emeritus scientist with Ducks Unlimited Canada's Institute for Wetlands and Waterfowl Research. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here. Did I get your title correct there? Is it scientist <laughs> emeritus? Yeah. Or just retired. Retired. Sure. <laughs> retired. But, but folks says as accomplished as you, rarely 100% retire. We've seen that before with some of our other, other guests as well. But yeah, as we, as we spoke about with Scott Stevens a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be reaching out again to a lot of our partners, a lot of our friends and colleagues and employees throughout the U.S. and Canadian prairies to, to try to give folks a, a view, a, a virtual view of how wetland conditions, breeding habitat conditions are unfolding on the prairies this year. We've obviously talked already with, uh, with Scott Stevens about the drought that's developing. People are seeing reports of that on social media Mm-hmm. And you had an opportunity to get out in the field here recently to southwestern Manitoba uh, to do some some surveys, some waterfowl surveys. And so this provides us another opportunity to get a glimpse of the landscape. That's actually, I think, one of the landscapes where Scott Stevens visited and referenced in our discussion with him. But but you actually have been collecting data as part of these uh, these annual visits to that landscape. And so you're going to have actually, in some respects, some 
some empirical information to share with us. So thank you for that. Uh, Mike, what I'll start out by asking you is to give people um, an idea of that southwestern Manitoba landscape. We oftentimes speak about the prairie pothole region, and some people may, may, may think that it's a rather homogenous landscape. It all looks the same, but that's not that's not the, the case at all. As you move from one area to the next, there are slight differences in the topography, density of wetlands, and so Minidosa is obviously a place that's uh, well-known within our community, within the waterfowl science uh, community. So for our listeners, kind of frame that up. Give people an idea of what that landscape there in southwestern Manitoba looks like. Well, it, it's gently rolling land. Um, the it's glaciated, uh, and the potholes are the result of of the last the last glaciation and the rubble and the ice that was left behind. Um, the total area is around four thousand square miles in southwestern Manitoba, um, and it's not all the same. Uh, parts of it are, are 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 sloped gradually. Parts of it are are what we call perched, which means the potholes are in a landscape that doesn't have a general slope to it, um, but just it's hummocky, just uh, up and down. Uh, it's nearly all in private hands. It's nearly all farmed. Uh, small grain and oilseed uh, crops are the predominant crops. There's some grazing, uh, some hay, but it's mostly um, an annual crop kind of matrix that the that the wetlands exist in. It was formerly uh, had a lot of trees, a lot of aspen uh, clumps. Uh, and after, oh, after World War II, when heavy equipment became readily available, the aspen started to go away as people were clearing more and more land. Um, but it was a it was a uh, a pretty uh, a pretty forested, Area mixed of forest and grass, but now that's pretty much pretty much all gone. Uh, there's a little bit of it remaining, but it's mostly cropland and and wetlands. The wetlands um, are small by and large. Um, there are a few that are as large as three or four acres, uh, but the majority of the wetlands are are well under an acre or in size. Um, so they're small, and they range from very shallow, temporary, temporarily flooded basins uh, to basins that are deep enough to have some water in them virtually all the time. We call those permanent, permanent ponds. Um, but most of them are ponds that have, that are, that are characterized as semi-permanent. They're, they have water in most years, but not all years. Typically an open um, center then a, a fringe, a ring around of, of cattail or bulrush, usually cattail, sometimes um, um, sedges and other, and other vegetation, but mostly cattail. And, and those ponds uh, have historically been very attractive to nesting uh, diving ducks, canvasbacks and, and redheads, because those species build their nests over water uh, using residual um, cattail or, or bulrush from the previous year and the uh, degree of flooding the the how much of that vegetation is uh, is flooded each year is an important factor in determining how likely birds are to nest and how likely they are to be successful um, because the more flooded cover there is um, 
you know, the odds of a predator finding them are smaller, uh, they're, they're concealed better, uh, and so on. Um, also, the uh, the water has to be uh, deep enough, has to be uh, widespread enough that it maintains through the duckling rearing season, which is which is about a nine week period for canvasbacks and redheads after they hatch. So um, you get the picture of a of a system of small ponds that's very dynamic from year to year. Uh, you see. Uh, huge changes in in the degree of flooding and the productivity of the birds from year to year. Um, this area was first uh, studied by biologists from Delta in the 1950s. Um, in 1961, a biologist named Jerry Stout with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, came up and started a project studying canvasbacks and redheads in this area. Uh, it's one of the one of the areas with the highest density of cans um, uh, that we know about anywhere, and uh, and Jerry began that work in 1961. Uh, there was a lot of concern about canvasbacks back in those days. In the early 60s, there were closures of cans and redheads; uh, you couldn't hunt them in the U.S. Um, and the lowest count ever, I think, was in 62 or 63 um, of, from the breeding pair surveys. So they were down around, uh, you know, just over 300,000 birds at that time. And they had been as high as about 750,000 in the late 50s. So it had been a huge drop. People were very worried about them. Anyway, Jerry's work began what turned out to be um, a very long period of work on canvasbacks in this region. Um, he worked uh, in the area until 1972, uh, at which point uh, David Trauger and Jerry Suri and Hal Doty and some other folks from Northern Prairie uh, began more specific research on cans using individually marked birds, which was a, a, a major innovative step. And uh, anyway, I first I first was in the area in 1972, so this. This marked my 50th year of being there and looking at the birds. Um, had a chance to help Jerry a little bit that first year when I was a, a field assistant for, for Delta. I came back in 1975 and started my doctoral work on uh, canvasback behavior, which I, um, I, I finished and then eventually came back um, in 1981 uh, began another project on canvasbacks. Again, this is back when I was with Delta, uh, and continued that through 1990. So uh, spent a lot of time out in that country, and and since then, since coming to Ducks, which I did in 1990, I continued to go back and and at least do the surveys uh, nearly every year. Not every year, but nearly every year uh, since then. So uh, we've got a quite a long uh, quite a long history now of canvasback and redhead populations in that area and a pretty good sense of how land use is changing, how the ponds have changed, um, all that sort of stuff. Mike, thank you. Thank you for that great introduction. This is the, one of those episodes where it's easy for me to be a host when I have a guest as knowledgeable as you with as much history as you do. I can just ask one question and I'm just, we're just on cruise control. So I, uh, yeah, as, sorry about that. No, You'll have to stop me. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. A lot of great information here. What I'll do is I'll go back 
and ask you a couple of follow-up questions. I've been fortunate to work in that landscape as a yeah. as a Delta f- summer field uh, technician for two years, I believe it was. And then I also worked in that landscape as part of my uh, the first year of my master's field research. And so I'm familiar with it. And it is an amazing landscape. Uh, it's uh, it, it's sort of in this prairie parkland transition zone between the more grassland prairies of the southern uh, southern Canada and, and yeah. into the U.S. and then the the boreal forest to the north. Um, the wildlife communities there are amazing. Uh, we've seen, uh, I guess, I've seen elk there recently on some some recent trips. Uh, what about moose? To get moose down into that into that area. Not many. There are there are occasional moose sightings down there. Um, for whatever reason, the similar pothole country in Saskatchewan, just a you know, on a, a hundred miles to the west, um, has more moose. Uh, but the Saskatchewan moose population generally is healthier than the Manitoba one. So, um, not the odd one, but but no, not not typically. Lots of deer. If my memory is correct, wetland densities on a per square mile basis uh, can get upwards of 125 to 150 wetland basins per square mile. If That's rare. That's okay. rare. Um, yeah, there are some that are still in that 80 to 100 range. Uh, but uh, as we'll probably touch on later, um, uh, the land has been subject to ongoing drainage uh, for a long time. And... Uh, and we've seen we've seen uh, some pretty strong uh, reductions in the number of wetlands in that landscape over the last fifty years. This is uh, a good time for me to encourage folks. If you're sitting around with your mobile device in front of you or a laptop in front of you, hop on Google Earth or Google Maps and punch in Minnedosa, Manitoba, uh, and that will give you an excellent aerial perspective of of this region. The the particular study area that Mike's going to be talking about is actually a bit south and east of the actual town of of Minnedosa. If you go, and it's a great great location where you can see the variation in wetland densities just across a relatively small portion of that landscape, emphasizing what what Mike was talking about earlier and that, you know, the it's not a uh, homogeneous landscape. Uh, but then, yeah, it's just, it's a neat opportunity there to see the variation in density of wetlands. And you can also see some of the wetland drainage, the evidence of some of the wetland drainage that has yeah. occurred that, that we'll, we'll talk about. So it's a fascinating area and it, it has been the site of numerous studies of waterfowl through the years. A Delta uh, field station uh, is over there and that's where a lot of research has been conducted. A lot of it, is, as Mike has talked about here, has been focused on canvasbacks and then of course the uh, redheads closely associated with canvasbacks and some of their nesting ecologies. So Mike, I guess what I'll do at this point is transition to giving you an opportunity to describe the wetland conditions this year in terms of how the the drought that is developing has been developing is in, is affecting those you have a you have uh, multiple decades of experience on the ground in that landscape and so you probably better than any other guest for us could could give us an understanding of how this year is shaping up from a historical perspective? Is it the worst you've ever seen? How close is it to the worst you've ever seen? What can you tell us to get an understanding of what that, uh, what wetland conditions look like? Conditions are poor. Uh, 
they're not the worst I've seen. Um, we have had um, years where 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 the water was lower, things were drier. 1977 pops to mind. Uh, 1989, 1981. Uh, there have been a few years where where we've seen uh, similarly. 1973 was dry to similarly dry conditions. Um, but it's but it's it's right down there. I, I told some folks. I said, you know, if if you go on a scale of one to five, where five are fabulous conditions, lots of flooded cover, uh, lots of water, good good prospects for brood survival and ha- and nesting success, um, to a one, which is just abysmal. Forget about it. Uh, completely dry. Nothing's going to happen. I, I give this year a, a two. Um, maybe a maybe a little less than two. Yeah. <laughs> maybe a, a a little bit of explanation. Um, one of the interesting things about canvasback um, nest success, you know, we we you tend to think about mallards and other upland nesting birds as, you know, needing around fifteen percent nest success to make it, and that it's not unusual to have data coming in showing nest success in the anywhere from you know five to twenty percent kind of kind of that that range um, with canvas backs the 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 biggest uh, feature is how much it varies from year to year uh, if you put together nest survival data which we've done over about a 25 year 30 year period um, we found nest success as high as 78 percent and as low as zero um, and a couple of years uh, that I mentioned before, 1977, 1989, were years of zero. I mean, there wasn't a single nest that hatched that we knew of in the, in the study area. Uh, but it, but it can, it can, it can be 55 percent the next year. You know, it, it's one of those things that uh, let, me, let me back up just a little bit and and give you a little more context about Minnedosa. Uh, it's kind of in the sweet spot of, of wetland types for things like canvasbacks and redheads and other overwater nesters. Um, if you go just a bit to the north and to the west, the ponds tend to be deeper and more permanent, and they don't fluctuate so much from year to year. Further to the south and the east, or, or even straight south, the ponds tend to be a little shallower, a little flashier from year to year. Um, but but the area south of Minnedosa, that 100 square miles or so, seems to just kind of be in this sweet spot where you'll get years that are a bust. And this year is probably going to be close to a bust. Uh, but then you turn around, you can have a fabulous year real closely thereafter. And it, and it all relates to water depth in that, in that cattail fringe, the water, uh, the vegetation around the ponds. And as long as those... Is that vegetation's intact? It hasn't been burned or plowed or, or whatever might, might be done to it. As long as that's intact, as soon as the water comes back, um, you've got much much better conditions for probable nest success, and so um, you get that tremendous variation from from year to year. So, okay, sorry, off on a tangent there a little bit. Back to this year. Before you do that. Uh, I want to fill in a couple of gaps. We, we have a range of, of listeners of all sorts of uh, tremendous variation in their 
exposure to waterfowl habitats, waterfowl ecology. So this gives me a a unique opportunity uh, or an easy opportunity, I should say, to point out a couple of very interesting differences between different suites of duck species that are obvious to to folks that have that have followed waterfowl or been waterfowl hunters for a number of years, but that may be may be unknown to to others. So nesting we uh, from a you mentioned dabbling ducks as ground nesting waterfowl. We're talking about mallards, pintails, shovelers, uh, teal. They require grass or other uh, upland vegetation to um, in which to construct their nest. They are literally upland nesting. Uh, species they they construct their nest on on land within some type of uh, grass or grass like um, vegetation community. But then there are other ducks, canvasbacks, redheads, scop uh, scop as well, kind of fall into this category that will, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, will nest over water. So explain that, Mike, in terms what do we mean by overwater nesting ducks and how does that how do they do that? Yeah, there are a number of of species that construct an, a floating nest uh, using the residual vegetation from the previous year. So the dead dried cattail or or um, white top grass or bulrush or whatever happens to be uh, around them. And they tend to select areas that have, um, you know, probably anywhere from a, a, a foot to maybe three feet of water so that um, it's unlikely that it's going to dry out before the, the nest would hatch. Um, they don't carry nesting material, which is interesting. Um, no waterfowls, 139 species of waterfowl around the world, and none of them carry nesting material. Um, coots, uh, on the other hand, build nests over water, but they'll bring in nest material from across the pond. They'll carry it, they'll swim with it, they'll bring it in. And so they can nest under conditions where where no one place is particularly dense with vegetation. They'll just go get it and bring it. Bring it. But anyway, cans and redheads uh, and, uh, and species like those uh, that nest over water go into a patch of, of cattail and they just start bending over vegetation, grabbing it in their bills and bending it over. And they build up a platform uh, that is high enough so that it's dry. Um, grebes do this too, but they'll actually nest on wet vegetation, which is different. But anyway, uh, cans build up these nests. And uh, and so they have a platform that is as big as, uh, oh, it could be a yard across, uh, although it's usually not that big. Maybe, um, you know, maybe uh, 15, 18 inches across by the time they're done and, and probably will stick out of the water uh, seven, eight inches, just enough to be up there and, and dry. And then they line the bowl of the of the of the nest with uh, with some feathers, um, some down they pluck from their breasts, and uh, that's that's where they where they lay their eggs. Um, so, I mean, there's a variety of species that do that um, and, and don't and don't go up in the uplands to nest. I think I mentioned uh, scop as an example of of a species that that might nest over water, but that's not very common, is it? Maybe I was thinking of ringnecks. Are they more likely to be in the overwater nesting crowd? Cans 
uh, are probably the one most likely to be out in deeper water. Redheads will use a slightly larger range. And out west, uh, in the Intermountain West in the U.S., it's not uncommon for redheads to nest uh, on dry ground. Scop are kind of intermediate. They will often nest up on dry land, but they'll also often nest in sort of the wet meadow zone, just right right kind of at the interface where the water uh, and the land meet. Ringneck ducks, um, a little more variable, but but they also nest over water, but you'll also see them on on uh, little hummocks of dirt uh, at the edge of the water. You'll see them on on muskrat houses. You'll see them doing different things, but they're, they're, uh, they're in similar places. The other species that nest in some of the deepest water is our ruddy ducks, which which they build nests uh, like canvasbacks do, but but uh, in somewhat deeper water. And interesting, ruddy ducks, ruddy ducks are one of the more sensitive species to to water conditions. And uh, this year, almost all the ruddy ducks we saw were in flocks. They weren't um, spread out across the landscape. They're in flocks on larger ponds. Uh, the odd one here and there in smaller ponds, but. But the impression you get is probably a low likelihood or at least a low commitment to nesting at this point by, by that species. Coots, too, in years where conditions are good, you go out there this time of year and you'll see coot fights all over the place. They're highly territorial. They compete for, for space around the edges of the ponds and, and they'll fight. You'll see black feathers on the water and all kinds of stuff going on. Um, this year... Yeah, a few coots looking like they're dispersed and, and maybe on territory, but again, a lot of them in groups, um, which suggests to me a nest. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Nesting effort, but not a big nesting effort.
So let's get back to wetland conditions. What else do we need to cover there? What you saw this year and then any type of longer term trend in that landscape? The smaller wetlands, the what we call temporary or, or, or seasonal wetlands, uh, wetlands that typically are wet in the spring, uh, but may dry out through the course of the summer. Uh, they're virtually all dry. They, there's, there's basically no water in those. Um, and those are important for all kinds of species, uh, partly for nesting, but, but largely for the, f- the food resources that are often there. Those often have lots of invertebrates, um, lots of food that ducks look for in the spring, and, and those are dry. Um, the, the semi-permanent ponds, the ones that, that if the picture is, you know, typical, say a little circular cattail pond with open water in the middle, a ring of cattail, and then ideally in most years, a little water out beyond the cattail, up up from the, toward dry land from the cattail. Those mostly have water uh, just to the inside edge of the cattail. So that means that while there's tons of, of uh, standing cover out there, almost none of it's flooded. Um, and so there are some ponds where uh, it is flooded enough to probably encourage some birds to nest. Uh, so I do expect that will happen. Um, but but I, I, I don't expect a strong nesting effort if the, and I'm talking about cans and, and redheads again, um, if we get rain, like not just a little rain, but a lot of rain, because the soil is out there is just dusty dry, um, and it's not going to run off easily. But if we get substantial rain that can uh, maintain the water levels we have right now, um, you might see uh, an extended nesting effort. But usually, springs like this, um, there'll be enough to encourage some birds to nest, but their probability of success is not high because there's just not a lot of cover to have to search if you're a predator. And uh, and uh, if they lose a nest, they're not likely to re-nest under these sorts of conditions. They're not likely to try nesting a second time. Whereas in years with very good water conditions, uh, they will try a, a second time. Um, and then, so that's that's sort of the the circumstance that that the birds find themselves in. Um, so I'm for this area at least, um, and I've 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 seen this over many decades now. I I anticipate very um, little very little production from overwater nesting birds. Um, I won't say zero, uh, but I but I but I think it's going to be modest and. Um, on the upside, um, the vegetation conditions for nesting are really good. There's a ton of cover out there. Um, so once water comes back, once we get water again, um, we should be, you know, we should be in pretty good shape. Um, the, 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 you know, the biggest thing that characterizes these, these wetlands, uh, over time is, is variability. You have wet years, you have dry years, and you got a lot of years in between. Um, and the critical thing from a conservation point of view is just keeping the darn basins in place. Um, because if you can do that, um, yeah, you have to deal with the, the natural fluctuations of wet years and dry years, but, 
but that's okay. I mean, these birds live for multiple years, and uh, once they get to be adults, they can live for multiple years. And uh, and so, you know, the drought isn't a, a, a tragedy. Um, it's it's a blip. It's a significant blip in terms of annual uh, productivity, but uh, you know, there are some there are some good things about wetlands drying out in terms of nutrient cycling and and the uh, and the uh, the life cycle of the plants and and, and so on that, that live in those in, in those systems. So, um, yeah, but this year is not going to be good. Now, dabbling ducks are a little different. Um, I think there's a very strong first nesting effort underway by mallards in this country. Um, mallards have been increasingly moving toward nesting over water, like cans and redheads. And that's partly, in, and this, this again, is, it's kind of Minidosa specific, but um, with, the, with the conversion of so much upland cover to crops, um, the choices of places to nest are, are fewer and nest success in uplands is not high. Um, so you're seeing a lot of mallards nesting over water. Now they tend not to nest in over deep water. They tend to nest more uh, in the in the shallow flooded parts of, of ponds, but you do find them there. And they're, Mike, they're constructing their nest in, the, in a fashion similar to the way we see other overwater yeah. nesters? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. We have a student down in Louisiana who observed that type of overwater nesting behavior in model ducks. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. And that's similar there too, Mike? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, I think, I believe, if I remember correctly, the nest was found in southern wild rice. Uh, it's where it was located. So very robust, emergent uh, type of plant. So there's, there's a few things, I think, going on with mallards. One is, and, I, and the reason I say there's a, I think there's strong nesting underway, there's a lot of, most of what we saw in our transects were uh, flocks of two to four male mallards together. Uh, way more of those than of, than of pairs. And there were lots of those. Um, there are several things. There's there are a lot of nest tunnels in that area that uh, the Manitoba Habitat Heritage Corporation and Delta have, have put out over the years. Um, there is this movement of birds to use more uh, emergent cover, flooded cover than than uh, than upland cover. And a lot of southern Manitoba and North Dakota is even drier than Minidosa. So Minidosa is dry, but uh, but parts of Manitoba further south and parts of, of North Dakota are really dry. And so we may well have some birds that have ended up at Minidosa because it was kind of the first place that they found half-decent water conditions. Um, also saw... Lots of blue teal and gadwall and shovelers, um, more than normal. The, the 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 other thing though is that most of those were in flocks of pairs. I didn't see very much evidence of territorial behavior by those species, and 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 they all are highly territorial. Now it's a little early for gadwall; they tend to nest a little later, but. Shovelers and, and blue wings by now ought to be getting pretty aggressive about carving out breeding territories. And I didn't see much of that. Uh, but there are a lot of pairs around. And uh, again, I 
I, I think it depends on what's going to happen over the next uh, month or so with with precip. We might see a we might see a reasonable breeding effort by those species uh, still in in this area. Mike, those observations that you shared with regard to an abundance of blueing teal and gadwall is almost certainly a reflection of very poor wetland conditions farther south, right? Yeah, yeah. Those, those birds flying over, uh, flying over those areas where they they are not finding suitable wetlands. We know the blue wing too. We talked about this quite a bit over the past year with last year being a year of, of such great wetland conditions in South Dakota and North Dakota. Blue wing teal breeding population numbers in those states were were exceptional. And uh, blue wing teal are, are very well known to uh, to settle in some of the first landscapes they come to that have suitable wetland conditions. And so the fact that you're seeing more there in Minnedosa tells you a little bit about what they indeed found farther south. And that's not surprising based on what we're hearing and seeing. There's, Mike, this is this is all great insight. And, and um, <laughs> there are many, many different conversations that we could expand on here. But I want to follow up a little bit about what we were just talking there with regard to behavior of some of those dabbling ducks overflying prairies farther to the south. You introduced the area of Minnedosa as being so very important for canvasbacks. If you care about canvasbacks, if you hunt canvasbacks, if you study their ecology, you know about Minnedosa. You know about its importance to this species. What I want to ask you, Mike, is what do we know about the tendency of canvasbacks, what, what do we know about their behavior in years like this? Will they, upon arriving in Minnedosa, because they're not really going to settle out in South Dakota, North Dakota, the way some of the blueing teal and some of the other, uh, some dabbling ducks will, they have in mind a destination back to uh, their, their natal area. Canvasbacks are one of the species that has the highest rate of, uh, of phylopatry back to their natal site or, or breeding site. What do we know about movements or settling patterns of canvasbacks in years like this? Will they travel on to other locations? Will they, will they, uh, upon deciding to forego breeding opportunities, go into the boreal forest like some other dabbling ducks or some dabbling ducks do? What do we know about that? Well, we know some things about that. We um, we had a lot of individually marked birds uh, with little plastic nasal saddles that had symbols on them and, and we could identify them at a distance. Uh, we had a lot of mark birds uh, through the 1970s and 1980s and we saw some significant droughts during that time. The general pattern for canvasbacks is that they keep coming back to where they were hatched as long as they're alive. There, are, There's very little evidence of birds being alive in a year, us not seeing them, so they were somewhere else, and then say getting shot and the band returned the following year. There's just little evidence of the birds uh, dispersing to to new places. Now, um, in in very dry years, exceptionally bad years, uh, we saw birds uh, that we knew belonged here that would um, come back be around for just a little while and go away. So they'd come back, check things out, and they'd leave. In most cases, we would see those birds back at Minnedosa the following year, uh, as long as conditions had, had, had improved. For birds in their first year of life uh, that don't survive as well, 
Um, there were a few exceptions where we would not see a bird back in a dry year and, and, and get a recovery that would suggest they'd been alive somewhere else and we hadn't seen them. And we've had birds we didn't see at all one year. Um, say 1989 was a, was a really dry year. We had some bird, we had a lot of marked birds in 1988. Some of those birds um, that we didn't see it at all in, in 89, we did see again in 1990. So we're not sure uh, exactly what happened to those birds. But there's not much evidence that those birds uh, go somewhere else and breed. Uh, I think they do uh, keep looking for better conditions. I mean, one of the other things we 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 noticed was that when a bird comes back in a dry year, if we if we knew that a bird, you know, call it nine X or something, tended to have a home range, an area where it operated of a square mile or so, and we knew what that pattern was like over two or three years, you get a really dry year, a nine X comes back. And suddenly her home range now is about three or four square miles uh, where where she is apparently just spreading out a little bit, looking for better conditions um, before she makes a decision about nesting or not. So there's very short range expansion of their range under these conditions. But I, I think the birds that leave and go long distances might occasionally find themselves in a situation where they where they can breed. But my bet is that most of those birds sit out the summer somewhere. They go to um, drift probably to the north and to the west, uh, probably not into the boreal, but maybe into the boreal edge, where you've got bigger, stable wetlands, maybe good beds of sago pondweed or something, and, and they probably spend the summer and then come back and try to breed again the next year at they're familiar old haunts. Yeah, it's it's not unlike, I guess, behaviorally, something I've been reading about here just the past couple of days due to some side conversations I'd had, and that's molt migration of, of Canada, temperate nesting Canada geese. I mean, it's it's different, I guess, in terms of the the species we're talking about and some of the conservation issues around that phenomenon, but it's sort of the same decision process. And in some cases, they were, it, some experiments had shown that a Upon initial nest destruction, these Canada geese will molt, forego any kind of uh, subsequent nesting attempt. You get a lot of sub-adult Canada geese that forego nesting and will molt, migrate out of an area into some of the northern latitudes and undergo molt and then kind of come back and do it all again. So it's the same idea of foregoing a breeding opportunity and um, not exposing themselves to risk in favor of trying to make it to the next year, right? Yeah, I think so. Interesting you mentioned Canada geese. when I first worked at Minidos in the 1970s, there were no Canada geese here, zero, none. Um, the very first breeding birds showed up in the mid 80s. And it was exciting enough that all the biologists would talk about it and we'd all go out and try to find the pair or find the brood and see the geese. And it was a big deal. And you're real, real careful not to disturb them. Oh, and, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. It was a big <laughs> deal. There, was, too. there were Canada geese that, out there. Well, now? Yeah. They are everywhere. Wow. Uh, but, but interestingly, uh, lots and lots of birds right now still as pairs, hmm. uh, whereas... Whereas, you know, most of the adult geese have hatched already. 
But there's lots of pairs out there. And I think they're exactly what you were describing. I've talked to a few goose experts about this. And uh, yeah, I think there's subadult pairs um, or they're birds that maybe couldn't couldn't carve out a territory or are just young and are just and just kind of you know, playing the dating game. Um, and they're very likely to to move on uh, as part of the that June, late June kind of molt migration that we that we see now as a, a major movement of birds through the through this part of the world. We could talk for an hour and a half or longer on a whole host of, of topics. Uh, you've shared your report based on your observations a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and there's, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stories in there. there. There are a lot of things happening all across our breeding waterfowl landscapes. Uh, interesting stories, whether it be drainage of wetlands, conversion of, of grasslands, conservation efforts that are being undertaken in response to those, uh, obviously the drought and individual species response to those droughts, uh, to, to the drought. But we're going to we're going to wrap this up here uh, for the for the sake of, of brevity. But this has been really fun for me to, to visit with you about uh, about a host of, of topics. We've we haven't gone into great detail on any of these. But uh, that's the that's kind of the neat thing that this that the podcast gives us an opportunity to do is touch on a variety of topics. And I would like to get back in touch with you at some other time, maybe talk a bit more just about canvasbacks specifically. I might have even said we weren't going to do that last year and we just failed to do so. But <laughs> you've, stu- you've studied canvasbacks uh, pretty much your entire career. And that's it's as we've touched on here multiple times, it's a very interesting species, a very unique species within the world of, of North American waterfowl. And you're the person to go to for our questions in regard to that species. But this has been a great introduction to it, and especially how they're responding to, to uh, dry wetland conditions in that important landscape. You've been involved in these conversations, uh, conservation, uh, waterfowl ecology, interacting with our Ducks Unlimited members and supporters for for a long time. So I want to give you an opportunity here as we close out to provide some words of words of wisdom, words of reassurance as hunters as we continue to go through the summer, assuming we don't get some major uh, game changers in terms of precipitation patterns. Words of wisdom and uh, and assurance to waterfowlers and anyone that cares about waterfowl about what this this year means in the grand scheme of things for waterfowl populations, and then perhaps what waterfowl hunters could expect or should begin preparing themselves this fall. I'm not I'm not sure how much wisdom I have to offer. Um, I, I can reiterate something I said earlier, and that is that that droughts are. Um, just a, a very short-term kind of tragic blip <laughs> in the in the uh, in the string of years of productivity for most of these birds. Uh, as long as we keep the habitat in place, droughts will come and go, and populations will respond accordingly. So, I don't think it's um, you know it's it's nothing to be too upset about. One of the scary things about drought, though, is that it does make it easier for people to get in and drain wetlands. And we'll see that time and time again. When it gets dry, the scrapers come out, the drag lines come out, and people can start to drain wetlands that they aren't able to uh, affect under wetter conditions. And that's really the risk that comes with drought. So again, the, the vital importance of 
wetland policy, of, of conservation uh, easements, of, of anything that we can do as conservation organizations to try to keep water on the land is really important. Um, so, so that's the, I think that's kind of the, the, the conservation um, lesson that comes out of this. I, from, a, from a hunting point of view, um, this is a real challenge for the people who are managing waterfowl uh, regulations, managing uh, populations, because we've now gone two years without our spring breeding pair survey. We've also lost a lot of effort in banding birds. And so the data that folks rely on to make really good decisions about uh, what, and I'm talking about just cans here, I'm talking about everybody, all the ducks, what constitutes a, you know, a, a safe, responsible opportunity for hunting is a little fuzzy. I think it's really going to be important uh, to get back in the get back in the airplanes and get and get back in the saddle and and get these counts and get the banding going again uh, because that loss of two years of information means that there's a lot of uncertainty around uh, population status and and uh, levels of productivity and I think a, you know a cautious approach uh, is probably merited uh, under these conditions I, I will. We'll still be hunting for sure, but I'm, uh, I don't envy the people who are having to try to deal with uh, making uh, good harvest management decisions under these circumstances. It's going to be tough for them this summer. Mike, the other, the other part of that conversation that has become a bit more complicated, you might say, in recent years is the fact that hunting regulations for the 21-22 season are already set. That, yeah. you know, no, the, way, know. the way they change the, the schedule of regulatory setting, yep. we're going we're gonna to connect, try to connect with Dr. Ken Richkus of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to have him share with us some, some insights, more detailed insights about some of the decisions that went into this year's cancellation, uh, as well as the very questions that you talked about. What does this mean for harvest regulations this year? But more importantly, it doesn't mean a whole lot for regulations this year because those are, those are set. But next year, what's yeah. going to happen? And then, yeah, let's get back in the plane. Let's let's resume and, and let's get back on the ground and, and band ducks and geese uh, the way we the way we need to in order to collect that important population monitoring data. And uh, and yeah, we'll we'll go from there. But we're going to try to get Ken on to to talk about that. That'd be good, Mike. Thank you again so much for your time and, and for for sharing your your insights. Um, I'm sure that. Anytime you get to talk about ducks and wetlands is a, is a good time for you, and, and uh, we'll take advantage of that as, as often as I can find time to carve out to do this. So thank you, Mike. And uh, let me ask you this. Do you, do you anticipate getting out to the Minnedosa landscape uh, an additional time here this summer? I'm not sure that we'll run any more surveys, but, but I'll certainly get out and have a look and see what, uh, see what seems to be going on, if, if only at a level of an impression as opposed to data. All right. Very good. We'll try to catch up with you. Uh, and I'll try to do a better job following up on some of those other topics this year than I did last year. So thank you, Mike. The redhead can story is a good one, and it's getting more and more interesting all the time. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll make a point of doing that. Thank you, Mike. All right. Take care. 
special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Mike Anderson, retired uh, emeritus scientist with Ducks Unlimited Canada's Institute for Wetlands and Waterfowl, uh, also known as Dr. Canvas Back. We greatly appreciate his time today. As always, we thank Clay Barrett, our producer, for the great work he does on this podcast. And of course, to you, the listener, we thank you for your support and for joining us and for your passion and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.